Supreme Court has already recognized that applying ICWA in a way that would impose a severe disadvantage on a child simply because of her status as Indian would raise grave equal protection concerns. And if it is applied in a manner that disregards you know, the harm done to children, I think, I think it will be. We know that family placement and cultural heritage and tribal connection is very, very important in the long-term best interest and mental health of children. And I believe the act, it was needed when it passed, it's still needed today, and that the current outcome in this case, with this child being placed with her family in Utah for a permanent adoptive placement, is what is in her best interest. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites. And uh, I also co-host another Legal Talk Network show, Law Technology Now with Monica Bay. And Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Craig, in a highly publicized custody case involving a six-year-old girl named Lexi, The use of the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978, a federal law that seeks to keep American Indian children with their American Indian families, has come into the spotlight. Well, Lexi was recently removed from her foster home after a lower court judge ruled that her Choctaw Indian bloodline required her to live with relatives in Utah. According to court records, Lexi was moved to foster care four years ago due to her birth mother's substance abuse problems, her birth father's criminal history and custody issues involving both birth parents and other children. Lexi's foster parents, the Pages, have since filed an appeal to the California Supreme Court. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at this case, at the law that pertains here, uh, the particular issues in the Indian Child Welfare Act and and child custody cases in a a broader sense. And helping us do that are two guests. First of all, today I would like to introduce attorney Lori Alvino McGill, partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Wilkinson, Walsh, and Eskovitz. Lori's practice focuses on all aspects of appellate strategy, including issue preservation, briefing, argument, and obtaining and opposing Supreme Court review. She has handled high-profile civil and criminal appeals involving a wide range of constitutional and statutory issues in state and federal appellate courts, including the Supreme Court of the United States, where she was involved in a similar case, uh, often referred to as the Baby Veronica case, She is presently representing the foster parents of Lexi in this case and uh, in their appeal to California's high court. You can find out more about Lori at wilkinsonwalsh.com. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Lori Elvina McGill. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Bob, also joining us is Chrissy Nemo, Assistant Attorney General for the Cherokee Nation. She has represented the nation in tribal, state, and federal courts since 2008. 
Ms. Nemo primarily focuses on the Indian Child Welfare Act and in-house counsel duties for the nation. She represented the Cherokee Nation in adoptive couple versus baby girl before both the United States Supreme Court and the South Carolina Supreme Court, and in Nielsen versus Ketchum before the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. Ms. Nemo also serves as the Adam Walsh Act Sex Offender Registration and Notification Compliance Officer for the Cherokee Nation. And you can find out more about Chrissy Nemo at Cherokee.org. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Chrissy Nemo. Thank you for having me. Lori, let's start with you and ask if you could give us an overview of what happened with Lexi and why you're pursuing this appeal. Sure. That's a big question. (laughs) This case has been going on for quite some time. (laughs) I'll try to break it down. Um, So you you mentioned that this case involves an application of the Indian Child Welfare Act. The act contains placement preferences for both foster and adoptive placements. Uh, And this case uh, began when Lexi was 17 months old and she was removed from you know, her biological parents because of you know, general neglect, unfortunately, um, and some allegations of abuse. And that, that was when? How old is Lexi now? How- so she's now six and a half. So this was back in um, 2011, okay. quite some time ago. And it was determined after uh, the Department of Children and Family Services conducted some diligence into her background, including trying to identify um, her biological father. It was determined that uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act would apply because her biological father was enrolled in the Choctaw Nation and uh you know, she was eligible to be enrolled. And so she fits the definition of an Indian child. So her initial placement um, was with a foster family that, you know, I don't even know their names. They were a temporary placement. Um, a, a placement that fell within the placement preferences was not available uh, at the time this child was in need of a placement. So she went to a a temporary foster placement in L.A. County uh, where she stayed for a few months and then was moved to a second foster placement uh, because the first foster placement decided that they could no longer care for her, in in part due to some behavioral issues and other issues. Um, She left her second placement shortly thereafter uh, with a black eye and a scrape on the side of her face and ended up with uh, Summer and Rusty Page initially as a, what they call a respite placement. It was meant to be very temporary. Um, they were begged to take this child in at that time, and it turned out to be a much longer-term foster placement. So fast forward, let's say, I think about 10 or 11 months, and um you know, ICWA, in addition to the placement preferences, just backing up a minute, has uh, lots of protections built in to the statute that protect biological parents' rights. And one of those provisions, um, you know, requires, as, as many state laws require, you know, active efforts of some kind to try to reunify the child with a biological parent. In this particular case, you know, the biological mother, unfortunately, um, is so troubled that she was not offered reunification services, but Lexi's biological father was. Um, and you know, during the time that reunification was being pursued, uh, Lexi was in you know the Page's home, and and almost a year went by. 
when it was finally determined that reunification efforts uh, were not going to be successful, uh, she had already lived with the pages for nearly a year. And it was at that point that the Choctaw Nation and the Department of Children and Family Services stepped in and said, you know, we've identified an alternative, you know, preferred placement with cousins, you know, extended family members in Utah. Um, and, you know, we're advocating for placement with them, you know, pursuant to the act. At that point, um, you know, Lexi thought of the pages as mom and dad. She called them mom and dad. She had been living in their home, um, being raised as one of their children for nearly a year. And so they sought to prevent that transfer from happening. And the California state court judge, uh, who was presiding at the time, agreed that they should have an opportunity to demonstrate that there was good cause to depart from the placement preferences. So the act itself, you know, on its face, provides for these preferences where um, the first priority is an extended family member, and then thereafter, a member of the child's tribe, and thereafter, um, another Indian family. But they don't apply if you can show that there is good cause to depart from the placement preferences. So they argued that there was, uh, in fact, good cause because, among other things, the child had grown so attached to them and was doing so well in their care. And the first judge you know, granted them you know, status to participate in the proceedings and considered that question, but concluded that they hadn't met their burden because they could not show with certainty that she would be seriously harmed and, and permanently damaged. At that point, I was not yet involved in the case, but I became aware of the Pages case um, shortly after that initial decision was rendered. They took an appeal, um, and I came on to represent them in that appeal pro bono. And we argued to the Court of Appeal, uh, among other things, that that is not you know, the correct legal standard that Congress had left to state courts, you know, which are the traditional forum for resolution of issues involving you know, child custody and the like, to determine on a case-by-case basis whether there is good cause to depart from the placement preferences. And that, you know, in any case, one of the essential considerations in that inquiry has to be that individual child's best interests, including but not limited to you know, the bond that they have formed with current caregivers and the harm that you would do from removing that child um, at a later date from a, a fit and stable family unit. So uh, the Court of Appeal agreed with us on that question and said that a court supplying the good cause exception to the placement preferences must consider a child's individual best interests, and that includes you know, the bond that they've formed with current caretakers, at least in a case like this one, which I think it's important to emphasize um, the tribe was, was properly notified under ICWA. There was not an available compliant uh, placement at the time of the initial foster placement. And so there was no you know, violation of, of the statute in the initial placement. And you know, as limited to situations like that, the Court of Appeals said you have to consider the harm that you would do to the child in determining good cause. 
we should probably pause for just a second in that history and kind of turn to Chrissy for a moment and, and have a perspective sure. of uh, tribal law and Native American heritage and how that plays into it from a completely different perspective. Chrissy? Sure. And um, I do want to say I'm not uh, directly involved in this case. I don't represent any party in the case. Um, I've worked on some uh, amicus briefs and talked some with the Choctaw tribe just as a tribal attorney who has gone through a similar type public child custody case. I'm not directly involved, so my knowledge is limited to what's publicly available in this case. When we talk about history, I want to go back much further than the history of this case, and it's it's always, to me, very, very important to understand why the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed in 1978. Um, I Obviously, we don't have time to talk about um, the entire history of Native American relations with the U.S. government in the United States, but what the end result was the policies of assimilation and termination of the federal government towards Indian tribes. And that started with boarding schools where Indian children were forcibly removed from their families and sent to military-style boarding schools where their hair was cut and they were punished for speaking their tribal languages. And it's well known that the um, kind of motto of these schools were, kill the Indian, save the man. Um, It was meant to be a complete and total assimilation of Indian people into American culture. After that, we had government-sponsored adoption programs, mostly led by religious organizations, would go into communities, Indian communities, and remove children, both forcibly and voluntarily, place them in white adoptive homes where these children were raised away from their family, away from their culture. Um, There was an even later program that is really interesting and directly bears on this case, It was, quote, voluntary relocation program sponsored by the United States government where um, Indian people, and this was not in ancient history, this was in the 60s, Indian people would move to urban centers voluntarily with assistance from the United States government, again, as a means to assimilate Indian people away from their traditional homes and their traditional areas and get them into kind of a metropolitan area. And it's believed that the reason that Lexi's father, who's the tribal member in this case, um, the reason that his family was in California was due to this voluntary, again, quote, voluntary um, relocation project by the United States government. So we have all of this history leading up to the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act in 1978 when um, studies were done and they found that in many Indian communities, the average of one-third of all Indian children were placed in out-of-home placements, and of those, more than 80% were placed in non-Indian, non-family homes. So you had huge numbers of Indian children um, in the 60s and 70s that were away from their communities, away from their families, and Indian people sounded the alarm at Congress and said, we need federal law to protect Indian children, to keep them with their families, to keep them with their tribes. So that is the, uh, the history that leads to the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And unfortunately, this, this case and the, the kind of core facts that it presents are not that unfamiliar because you will have a child taken into custody. The preferred placement is with a family member. And that is all state law and federal law also that provides funding for foster care. Um, preferred placement for a child in foster care is with a family, if, if that's possible. But what you often have happen, the, the child comes into custody 
family isn't close. And in order for the parents to work towards reunification, which is also a both federal and state law requirement to seek to reunify, the child has to be located physically close to where the parent is located. Um, oftentimes, these parents wouldn't have the ability to move if the child was placed in another state. So especially with Indian children, if you have parents who are w- away from their tribes, away from their families, away from their communities, there very well may be family placements, um, as I believe there was early identified in this case, but the family lived in Utah. So they, they couldn't place the child in Utah while simultaneously working a reunification plan with the child and her father in California. So the child had to be placed in a foster home. And so then the issue comes to if that reunification fails, should the child stay in the foster home that they're in or should they be placed with a family member for permanent placement? And I think that Lori would agree with me that we have a difference of opinion on that. Um, I think the, the Paige's argument is removing this child from our home will cause her harm right now because she has a bond with us and severing that bond will be detrimental to her. Whereas from a tribal standpoint, we're looking at the rest of this child's life and her whole life, her whole history, her whole culture, her whole family connection, and saying that a move to a family member for a permanent placement until she turns 18 or 25 or whenever kids leave home now, for her to be in her family's home, to be raised in her family's home, to be raised surrounded by her family. She's got biological half-siblings in the home that she's located in now. And we see that as a very big part of what is in her best interest, not just a bond that she has developed now with a placement. And that is where I think you get the the disagreement and, and the rub in these cases that One side looks at moving the child can cause harm, and the other side, I don't think, denies that that there's going to be some harm in severing a bond with a caregiver, but we have to consider what's best for this child for the rest of her life, for her whole life, and including all aspects of her life. You know, a lot of the coverage I've seen of this case makes a lot of the fact that Lexi sort of a a minor percentage, Chaka, I think it's what I've read is 164th. Chaka. Does it matter what the percentage of the bloodline is? How important is that to this overall equation? Chrissy, I would like to hear from you first on that, I guess. Okay. Well, legally, um, it doesn't matter at all, her blood quantum. Some tribes use blood quantum as a criteria for establishing citizenship. Other tribes, like the Choctaw Nation and my own tribe, which I'm a member of, Cherokee Nation, Blood quantum is not a factor in citizenship. You simply have to be a descendant of the kind of original group of Cherokees, which for us comes from the Dawes Royals. The Choctaw comes from their enrollment documents. And um, to me, it's a red herring when I see this as one percentage Choctaw, one percentage Cherokee, as in the Veronica case. It's not about her Indian blood or her Indian race. It's the fact that she's a citizen, and she is a citizen. At the time this case started, her dad was a citizen. She was eligible. She's now enrolled. So she is a citizen of the Choctaw Nation. And whether her blood quantum is four-fourths, which would be 100%, or whatever it is, it doesn't change her affiliation with that tribe. She's a citizen of the tribe, just like I'm a citizen of the tribe. I'm a citizen of the United States. Someone isn't half a citizen or a quarter of a citizen of the United States because they also happen to be some other racial background. And it's a point that 
to me, it is, it's simply a red herring. She's a citizen of the Choctaw Nation. No one disputes that. And it is um, something that people can throw out there. Chrissy, I want to get, I know that's the law and that's the legal side of it. But in American culture, there's a lot of bullying that goes on with children and otherwise due to race. And there are some very derogatory terms that are used on the American side of the equation. How is it in Indian culture? Is she going to be fully accepted in the tribe or will there be some style of bullying among the children because she's not full blood? Well, I don't know the the percentage for Choctaw Nation, but I doubt that the majority of their citizens are not full blood. I would guess that the majority of most tribal citizens are not full blood. Um, And again, I'm not Choctaw and I can't speak directly for their tribe, but for Cherokee Nation, your blood quantum affects none of your rights or privileges as a tribal member. If you are an enrolled citizen, you are entitled to every right and privilege that every other citizen is, regardless of your blood quantum. Right, but does Um, that translate into real life? I think so. I mean, because when you think about what it means to be a tribal citizen, whether it is tribal events that you participate in, custom and, and tradition, whether it's the benefits that you receive from your tribe, whether it's employment through your tribe, all of these things that that kind of this this bundle of tribal benefits voting um, in tribal elections, none of those things, at least for Cherokee Nation, are determined by your blood quantum. So what it means to be a citizen, now obviously there are people that are going to look differently. There are going to be people who are very identifiably Native American. I can tell you I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. I have blonde hair and blue eyes, and I feel completely accepted by my tribe, Um, always have been, and I think I always will be. So People in Indian country know that Indians look different. You don't have to have this very, you know, kind of Hollywood stereotypical dark skin, long dark hair to be a citizen of a of a tribal government. Great. Lori? So um, a couple of responses to what's been said. I mean, I think even if we all agreed that blood quantum as such was irrelevant, the issue of of Lexi's connection or not, or her parents' connection or not to a tribal community is. And if you just think back to to Chrissy's very comprehensive and I think accurate description of the concerns that led to the passage of ICWA, it, it just illustrates for me how far afield this particular application is. There's no suggestion in this case, for example, that the child was wrongfully removed from a biological parent. Um, And there's no dispute that neither her Hispanic biological mother nor the biological father was part of an Indian community. In fact, the courts have found in this case that he initially denied Indian heritage. It was only through an investigation that it was determined that he was a member of the nation. So from the outset, this was a case that was I think, far afield from the concerns that Congress identified when it enacted ICWA. Back to blood quantum just for a minute. You know, Chrissy is the is the expert with regard to the Cherokee Nation, and I don't doubt you know, that what she says is true. With regard to the Choctaw Nation, it is not true that Lexi is an equal citizen. Based on her 164th blood quantum, she's not eligible to run for leadership positions in the tribe, for example. And then the third point I would just make is that uh, something that's been lost so far, I think, in our discussion is that Lexi was not removed from the pages to be placed into an Indian community. Her extended relatives in Utah are not Choctaw, and they are not Indian, um, and nobody disputes that. So those are, you know, sort of the three 
responses that I would have. I mean, it's not relevant under ICWA, certainly. On the face of ICWA, Lexi is an Indian child, but to me, that just begs the question of whether its application could possibly be justified here. Yeah, we need to take a short break. We're going to be back in just a few moments after hearing some words from our commercial sponsors. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Craig Williams, and with us today is my co-host, Bob Ambrosi, attorney Lori Alvino-McGill, a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Wilkinson, Wash, and Eskovitz, along with Chrissy Nemo, who was the assistant attorney general for the Cherokee Nation. We've been talking about the battle over Lexi and the Indian Child Welfare Act. There's been some positions taken both sides. What's in the best interest of the child and who gets to make that decision? But, Lori, what is in the best interest of the child? Is the child hurt in this or is it simply that because the child is an Indian, that's the way it goes under the Indian Child Welfare Act and there's not much to it? Well, I mean, as we've been discussing, Congress, when it passed the act, wrote into the act a good cause exception. It's not otherwise defined, but we know from the legislative history that uh, Congress intended state courts to apply ICWA in a way that would take account of an individual child's needs. And so I think, you know, yes, there's harm here and that under state law, it's clear that remaining in a fit, you know, stable placement where this child has lived for most of her life with the people she knows as her mom and dad, I don't think it's even a close case under state law that that would be in her best interest. And that would be the placement that would prevail even over a grandmother or a close relative. So in some ways, you know, the discussion about, you know, this is her family, it's extended family and, and the like is To me, that is really the red herring in this case, because what we're talking about is a change from the the standard law. State law normally would dictate a particular outcome, but because this child falls within the Indian Child Welfare Act, it indicates a different outcome um, and one that I think you know, state law would recognize is a harmful outcome in terms of this particular child's best interests. You know, it puts the, the statute, I think, under under a spotlight, because if a case like this doesn't satisfy the good cause exception, one wonders, you know, what sort of case would. And I think you know, the Supreme Court has already recognized that applying ICWA in a way that 
would impose a severe disadvantage on a child simply because of her status as Indian would raise grave equal protection concerns. And the statute doesn't have to be vulnerable to that sort of challenge, but if it is applied in a manner that disregards you know, the harm done to children, I think, I think it will be. Chrissy, is it that the need to make up for historical wrongs is the reason that Alexi's being moved here, or is it really a circumstance of just simply applying the act in the appropriate manner and overcoming that good cause exception? Um, I, I think it's, I, I absolutely think the statute's being applied. Um, to respond to Ms. McGill, I think what is very important to note in this specific case that Ms. McGill's clients are the only people in this case that think that it's in Lexi's best interest to stay in their home. Um, the child in this case is represented by independent counsel, and the child's attorney, the state of California, the Department of Social Services, the tribe, and dad all believe that Lexi's best interests are served by placing this child with her family. So again, I think this goes back to there's a difference of opinion about what is in Lexi's best interest. The foster parents believe that it's her remaining with them, whereas everyone else in the case believes that her best interests are served by long-term permanent placement with family members if she can't be placed with her parent. And um, I think it's important, um, Lori mentioned that the family in Utah is not an Indian family. They're, They're simply relatives. And the first placement preference of the Indian Child Welfare Act is with an extended family member whether or not that person is a member of a tribe, then it goes to the child's tribe. And I think it's really important that, you know, even ICWA with its goal to preserve tribal culture and tribal ties recognizes that all children are best served when they are placed with family members if they can't be placed with their biological parents. And again, that is, that's a recognition under state law. It's a recognition under federal law in order to receive foster care funding that there's a presumption that if a child cannot be placed with their biological parents, that the next best placement with them is a family member. And ICWA adopts that presumption by not putting tribal interests before family interests. So at its, at its core, because although it's under, called the under Child state Welfare law, Act, Chrissy, I must interject because under relevant state law, there's no dispute in this case that if California state law applied, that that presumption would give way to the child's right to a fit, stable placement after the period of time that we're talking about, even after a year, the cases do not require or even encourage placement or allow (laughs) placement with an extended family member simply because that person is an extended family member. And I think the real issue here, as, as you mentioned, I mean, we the pages, uh, my clients, are the only party to the case that's advocating a departure from the placement preferences. But it is not true to say that all of the other parties just simply have a disagreement as to what's in this child's best interest. In fact, the court-appointed attorneys for the child and the Department of Children and Family Services have argued, consistent with the tribe's arguments, that the child's individual best interests may not be considered and that it's only upon a showing of, you know, really extraordinary harm or extraordinary physical or emotional needs that can't be met by the preferred placement that can overcome the preferences. And we just think there's no basis in the statute to essentially, you know, write out the good cause exception and make it impossible to satisfy. 
It was meant to take account of individual circumstances. We need to interrupt you at this point because it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program. So we'd like to invite our two guests to share their final thoughts along with their contact information so our listeners can reach out to them. So, Christy, let's start with you. Sure. As I believe I've said, um, I I believe that the Indian Child Welfare Act is designed with what is presumed to be in all children's best interest, that they remain connected to their families, connected to their tribes. And I do agree that the bar should be very high to overcome those legal presumptions. We know from years of research, from from child welfare best practices, from all of the non-Indian child welfare organizations that support the Indian Child Welfare Act and support specifically in this case this child being placed with her family. We know that family placement and cultural heritage and tribal connection is very, very important in the long-term best interest and mental health of children. And I believe the act, it was needed when it's passed, it's still needed today, and that the current outcome in this case with this child being placed with her family in Utah for permanent adoptive placement is what is in her best interest. Um, Chrissy Nemo, I am on the website at Cherokee.org. My email address, chrissi-nemo, N-I-M-M-O, at Cherokee.org. And I am also on Twitter, Ms. Hardcase, M-I-Z-H-A-R-D-C-A-S-E. Thank you. Thank you. And Lori? Sure. Well, it's it's hard to summarize my thoughts on this case briefly, but I think I would just say that, you know, the, the question before the California courts right now is a pretty narrow one. You know, it's whether there's good cause to depart from, from the placement preferences in the act. And the Court of Appeal has already held in this very case, joining many other state courts, that in making that determination, the child's bond to her foster parents is an essential consideration, as well as her best interests as an individual more generally. And, you know, in finding no good cause here, the dependency court essentially ignored those instructions. So we're hoping for a positive outcome on appeal, you know, and I would say just briefly that the other sort of larger federal questions looming in this case are also preserved for further review if necessary. My contact information is uh, I'm Lori Alvino McGill, at uh, a partner of Wilkinson Walsh and Eskovitz here in Washington, D.C., and you can uh, find out more about me, my law firm, and my practice at www.wilkinsonwalsh.com. Well, thanks a lot to both of you. We've been talking with Attorney Lori Alvino McGill uh, from the Washington office of Wilkinson Walsh and Eskovitz, and uh, Attorney Chrissy Nimmo. Uh, Nemo, I'm sorry, Assistant Attorney General for the Cherokee Nation and the person with the best Twitter handle I've ever heard, I think, Ms. Hardcase. I love Thank that. Thank you. Thanks to both of you for uh, taking the time to be with us today. This is a really, really informative and interesting discussion. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me. Great. And thank you for listening to our listeners. And join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.